Hello everyone, welcome back to Legends of Surgery, I'm your host Tyler Rouse. Now it's been a while since I've added a suture tale to the end of an episode, and the suggestions and ideas are building up, so I thought today we'll have a sort of potpourri episode. We'll cover five separate topics including a medication, a maneuver, a procedure, a person, and a device. So you can listen to the whole thing in one go, or break them up into little snacks, whatever works for you. I don't have any particular theme linking these topics, just trying to clean up the suture tails that were accumulating, like the ends of sutures building up in the drapes in the operative field. So let's square these knots and tidy up those loose ends in this episode of Legends of Surgery. Let's start with the history of warfarin. I don't even remember where I first came across this, but it is a great story. Not only will you learn where the name comes from, but also how an observation by early 20th century farmers led to its discovery. Warfarin is the most widely used anticoagulant in the world. The story of its discovery begins in the prairies of Canada and the northern plains of the U.S. in the 1920s. Previously, healthy cattle started dying from internal bleeding with no obvious cause. Eventually, the diet of the livestock was investigated. Cattle and sheep tended to graze on sweet clover hay, and it was determined that the incidence of this odd bleeding disorder increased under damp conditions. The damp hay became infected by molds such as Penicillium nigricans and Penicillium yensi. Normally, this hay would be discarded if it was spoiled in storage, but due to the financial hardships suffered by farmers in the 1920s, the moldy hay was fed to the livestock. The illness became known as sweet clover disease, which typically occurred within 15 days of ingestion and killed the animal within 30 to 50 days. Two veterinary surgeons named Schofield and Roderick showed that the disease was reversible if the hay was taken away or if the animal received a transfusion of fresh blood. Ten years following the first outbreak of sweet clover disease, a Wisconsin farmer named Ed Carlson became fed up with the loss of his livestock. He didn't accept the sweet clover disease theory as farmers had been feeding cows with the hay for generations with no ill effect. One winter's day, he traveled 200 miles in a blizzard with a dead cow in the back of his truck, driving it to the local agricultural experimental station. There, two researchers named Carl Link and Wilhelm Schoffel, who was Link's student, were working that day. Carlson entered Link's office, as it was the only one he found open, and presented Link with a milk can of unclotted blood. While Link couldn't do much to help Carlson, the can of uncoagulated blood lying on the floor of Link's laboratory was to change the course of history, and little did Link know what the implications would be, as one paper put it. Link's laboratory worked to find the active substance in the spoiled hay, and after six years of intensive work, they were able to isolate a crystallized form of the substance. They found that coumarin, a naturally occurring substance, became oxidized in the moldy hay, forming a molecule called dicoumarol. Now before we continue, let's take a second to discuss coumarin. This chemical is present in many plants and causes that characteristic odor of new-mown hay or freshly cut grass, described as similar to vanilla. It has a bitter taste and it likely serves as a chemical defense against predators. Coumarin was first isolated from tonka beans in 1820, and the name actually comes from this, as the French word for tonka beans is coumarou. These beans, native to Central and South America, are quite interesting themselves. Because of their high concentration of coumarin, they have been used as an artificial flavoring agent, as well as in perfumes, cosmetics, detergents, and even tobacco products. 
While coumarin itself has no anticoagulant properties, it has been shown to have some liver toxicity in high doses in rats. Now, Because of this, the FDA in the U.S. banned its use in 1954. However, many chefs seek out the tonka bean as a spice, despite it being illegal. And there are stories of even high-end Michelin star restaurants being fined for possessing it. Interestingly, it would take approximately 30 beans or 1 gram, which is equivalent to 250 servings, to cause any harm, an amount at which other more common spices like nutmeg would also be toxic. But back to coumarin in the laboratory. Once it was realized that the active ingredient was the oxidized form of coumarin, called dicoumarol, large-scale isolation was the next step. This was done by a graduate student named Mark Stallman, which was funded by the Wisconsin Alumni Research Foundation. Now prepare to have your minds blown. What is the acronym of that foundation spelled out? W-A-R-F, WARF, which is why the drug is called warfarin. (gasps) So what to do with this newfound drug? Going back to our old friend Carl Link in the year 1945, when he was in a sanatorium recovering from wet pleurisy, what we now call a pleural effusion or fluid in the pleural cavity, likely from pneumonia or influenza, he got the idea of using the drug as a rodenticide, with the rats dying from internal hemorrhage. His group made some alterations and came up with what we now know as warfarin. Now the next step is to go from a rat poison to a prescribed medication. And amazingly, this actually involved the President of the United States. In 1955, Dwight Eisenhower had a myocardial infarction. I covered the surgical history of U.S. presidents, including Eisenhower, in episodes 30 and 31, so go there if you want to learn more. He was given warfarin as part of his treatment. It had been given the green light as a medication just the year before, and widespread use was slow to develop, partly because it was difficult to titrate the dose, as the commercial sources of thromboplastin varied widely in responsiveness. So patients would get an accidental overdose, leading to widespread reports of bleeding. It was this problem that led to the World Health Organization in 1983 to develop a model to convert lab results of prothrombin obtained with an any reagent to an internationalized, normalized ratio, the lab test we all know today as INR. And there you have it. The story of how bleeding cows on the Great Plains of North America in the 1920s led to Coumadin and INR. Now you know. Next up is something called Durant's Maneuver. This consists of putting patients in the left lateral decubitus position to prevent an air embolism in the venous system from lodging in the lungs. The idea is that the air will rise and stay in the right side of the heart until it eventually absorbs. Left lateral decubitus is simply lying on the left side. Decubitus comes from the Latin word decumber, which means to lie down. You may also know it from decubitus ulcers, commonly called bed sores, which occur when pressure from the body's own weight presses the skin against a hard surface like a bed, which cuts off the blood supply to the skin. If the patient isn't moved, the lack of blood, aka ischemia, will lead to necrosis and eventually ulceration. These can be some of the most difficult wounds in medicine to treat, but I digress. Let's instead talk a bit about what an air embolism is and what we know about the history of them in the literature. First, and I can't believe this hasn't come up already, but the word embolus has some interesting etymology. It comes from the Greek word embolos, which means a peg or stopper, 
anything pointed so as to be easily thrust in. It was also used to describe a tongue of land or beak of a ship. It wasn't used in the medical sense, in reference to the obstruction of a blood vessel, until the middle of the 19th century, when it was coined by perhaps the greatest pathologist in the history of medicine, Rudolf Virchow, when he used it in 1848 in his research on blood clots. But what we're talking about here is the air embolism, and even that has to be clarified further. I'm talking about iatrogenic, meaning an injury caused by medical intervention, literally caused by a physician, iatros, Greek for physician, and genic, as in genesis, or cause. The other cause, and some of you may have guessed, is related to deep sea diving, sometimes called the bends. Originally, this was called caisson disease, after the watertight retaining structure used in the construction of the supports for bridges and piers, the construction of dams, and the repair of ships. These were essentially big boxes, caisson in French means big box, and are pressurized to keep out water. Caisson disease was first used in 1873 when physician Andrew Smith described 110 cases of decompression sickness as the doctor in charge of the construction of the Brooklyn Bridge. This was due to a lack of decompression after working in the pressurized air, leading to dissolved gases coming out of solution when the pressure decreased, creating air emboli in the system. During the project, it became known as the bends because afflicted individuals characteristically bent forward at the hips from the pain. One source suggested the inspiration for the name came from a popular women's fashion and dance maneuver at the time called the Grecian Bend. So let's get back to the iatrogenic causes. This occurs when atmospheric gas is introduced into the systemic venous system. In the days before anesthesia, when one of the key factors for surgical success was speed, large veins would be opened, leading to air emboli. Nowadays, the most common causes are neurosurgical operations and ENT procedures, but can occur in many other types of surgical interventions. Essentially, there needs to be a direct communication between a source of air and the vasculature, and a pressure gradient favoring the passage of air into the circulation. Now, Once enough air enters the venous system, it is carried to the right side of the heart, first the atrium, then the ventricle, and finally it is ejected into the pulmonary artery. Now, air bubbles act as, and I'm quoting a paper here, an air slug tampon, blocking the pulmonary outflow tract of the right ventricle. When enough air occupies the entire right atrium and ventricle, not only is there no blood going into the pulmonary circulation, but there is no venous return to the heart. This leads to a lack of oxygen to the brain due to reduced or even no pulmonary blood flow needed for gas exchange, left ventricular ischemia since there is markedly decreased cardiac output and hypotension, which is needed for perfusion of the coronary arteries that feed the heart, and even right ventricular failure. But enough pathophysiology, let's get into some history. In the 17th century CE, there is the first recorded experimental injection of air into an animal by someone called Wapfer, and I couldn't get more detail than that, who killed a full-grown ox by oral inflation of its jugular vein. Also, no details on how exactly he managed this, as I doubt the ox was a willing participant. By the early 19th century CE in Europe, air injection was used to kill mangy and diseased horses. But the first recorded air embolism during an operation was around 1800, when a surgeon named Barlow from Blackburn in England was removing a tumor from a patient's neck. There was a sudden hissing sound, and the patient 
quote, expired immediately without either a groan or a struggle, end quote, and efforts to resuscitate them were unsuccessful. As there had been minimal blood loss up until this point, the cause of death was chalked up as debility and syncope. It wasn't until some 30 years later that Barlow realized that the actual cause had been an air embolism. Now, other cases were reported over the years, but real interest in this was stimulated by our old friend Guillaume Dupatrin, see Podcast 91. A physician named Sansom wrote up a case of Dupatrin's, as in the surgeon, not the disease, where the great French surgeon was removing a tumor from the back and side of the neck of a young girl. When the tumor was nearly completely detached, a whistling sound was heard, and Dupatrin remarked that, if he had not known that he was some distance from the air tubes, meaning the trachea, he would have supposed that he divided them. Now scarcely had he said this than his patient exclaimed, I am dead, or more likely, je suis mort, as this was in Paris, leaned against the chair in which she was sitting, and fell lifeless. It was written, quote, Every possible means were employed to excite the action of the heart, and Dupatrin himself inflated the lungs, but without success, end quote. A post-mortem revealed that a large vein was crossing the tumor, which communicated directly with the jugular vein, and it had been opened and remained open. As well, air was found to be distending the right atrium. By 1843, at least 40 cases had been described in the literature. As these continued to accumulate, the French surgeon Jean Zulema Amusat and the American surgeon Nicolas Sen, for whom the Sen retractor is named and probably should at least have his own suture tail segment in the future, together collected and reviewed more than 250 case reports. This led to a more clear description of the pathophysiology, clinical presentation, including the mill-wheel murmur associated with large intracardiac air emboli, and even suggested that cannulation and aspiration of the right side of the heart as treatment. However, it wasn't until a landmark paper by Durant that showed the first real successful method of treatment. Thomas Durant, who lived from 1905 to 1977, was a physician at Temple University in Philadelphia, joining the faculty in 1936. While he had a wide range of interests, it was his landmark paper in 1947 that we're interested in. But first, a fun bit of trivia. Temple University was founded by Russell Conwell, a Baptist minister, who began tutoring working-class citizens late at night after they were done work. These students became known as the Night Owls and were taught in the basement of Conwell's Baptist Temple, which led to the name of the school, Temple, and its nickname, the Owls. Anyways, in this paper, Durant described his success in animal models with experimentally reproduced venous air embolism by placing them in the left lateral position. This was based on the fairly simple concept that, due to air buoyancy when patients are in this position, the right ventricular outflow tract is located inferior to the body of the right ventricle itself. Therefore, the air trap would move up to the now more superior part of the ventricle, the apex. But let me quote directly from the paper, which was published in the American Heart Journal. Quote, Our studies in the experimental animal have shown that important factors in determining whether death or survival will occur are 1. The amount of air which gains admission to the circulation 2. The speed with which it enters 3. The position of the body at the time of the embolic accident and 4. The efficacy of the respiratory excretory mechanism Death, when it occurs, is due to circulatory obstruction resulting from an air trap in the right ventricular outflow tract. 
Displacement of the air trap by turning the body into the left lateral position may be life-saving, even after the right ventricular contractions have become feeble and death seems imminent, end quote. You can see why this paper had such an impact and why this became known as Durant's Maneuver. While later studies have shown that closed chest massage, uh, a.k.a. CPR, and intracardiac aspiration have equal benefit. Yet this maneuver is still recommended as a first step until more definitive management can be performed. Okay, on to the next topic. For this, we will cover a procedure, an idea that was suggested by email to me by the son of one of the inventors. We're talking about percutaneous endoscopic gastrostomy, or PEG for short. Simply put, this is the placing of a tube into a patient's stomach through the abdominal wall using an endoscope to help place it. A tube directly into the stomach allows enteral feedings, as opposed to parenteral feedings, see podcast 95, which is useful in patients that cannot take food by mouth. Prior to the invention of PEG, the placement of a gastrostomy tube required an open laparotomy, first done successfully by Parisian surgeon Aristide Auguste Stanislaw Vernou in 1876, and other than some modifications made around the end of the 19th century, remained essentially unchanged. This operation was mainly reserved for supporting the nutritional requirements of adults with severe neurological impairments such as with strokes and children with severe developmental delay. Due to the high risk of general anesthesia in these patients, these operations were rarely done. That is, of course, until 1979, when a casual observation of a literal light going on inspired a whole new approach. Pediatric surgeon Dr. Michael Goderer worked in Cleveland, Ohio at the Rainbow Babies and Children's Hospital. Now that's an odd name for a hospital, so let's take a minute to review that history. It began in 1887 when nine young women from prominent wealthy families gathered on Thanksgiving to form a, quote, circle of king's daughters, end quote, a national sisterhood at the time whose mission was a perfect determination to relieve suffering. The young women called their own group the Rainbow Circle of King's Daughters, starting to see a connection here, and they met to determine how they could help poor children in Cleveland. Their vision was to provide a place for sick children to convalesce, and after raising funds, did just this, opening the Rainbow Cottage in 1891 on a poultry farm in Glenville, on a bluff overlooking Lake Erie. After a few moves, they merged in 1971 with the Babies and Children's Hospital, which has a similar history, to a new building called the Rainbow Babies and Children's Hospital. And there you have it, the Rainbow Connection. So Dr. Goderer worked at this hospital as a surgeon, but as fiber optic endoscopes were a relatively new technology in 1979, as the first practical fiber optic gastroscope was patented by a team at the University of Michigan in 1956, one which allowed the transmission of light from one end to the other even when bent, ushering in the modern era of endoscopy, he didn't perform endoscopy himself. Instead, the head of surgical endoscopy at the University Hospital in Cleveland, Dr. Jeffrey Ponsky, would be brought in to do the scopes on pediatric patients. Now, the story of how Dr. Ponsky, a surgeon himself, became interested in endoscopy is a good story, one that he himself told in an interview that was sent to me by his son. As a surgical resident, a grueling experience as many know, he wanted to find a light rotation and decided on gastroenterology. They were the ones performing scopes at the time, which seemed interesting. 
However, in a sort of turf battle that anyone who's practiced medicine will be familiar with, they refused, stating that they would not train a surgeon. Fortunately, the chief of staff at Dr. Ponsky's hospital knew of a gastroenterologist who was looking for trainees. Although it was an hour and a half drive away, Dr. Ponsky went there every day for a few months, performing around 500 scopes. With this newfound experience, he offered to come in at any hour, day or night, to perform scopes for the private internists at the hospital. The only problem was that the surgery department didn't have the funding to go by Dr. Ponsky a scope. Mentioning this at a family gathering, his mother-in-law offered to pay for one. This act of kindness led to him becoming a leader on the forefront of this new, burgeoning field of medicine. But back to 1979. One day, Dr. Ponsky was scoping an infant under Dr. Goderer's care in the operating room under anesthesia. The lights were dim to better see the image at the objective of the endoscope. Dr. Goderer was standing by watching the procedure when he became impressed by the glow of the infant's stomach. Realizing that there was nothing between the stomach and the infant's thin abdominal wall, he hit on an idea. Later that same day, Dr. Goderer approached Dr. Ponsky in the corridor and they discussed a radical idea using the endoscope to guide a tube into the stomach without laparotomy. And so they gathered up equipment that they needed for a prototype, and on June 12, 1979, along with surgical resident Dr. James Beckany, the first PEG procedure was done on a four-and-a-half-month-old child with a neurological condition with inadequate oral intake. Let me quickly describe what Dr. Ponsky called a bit of endoscopic choreography. After distension of the stomach during endoscopy, a site for the gastrostomy was chosen based on the glowing silhouette of the stomach. A small incision was made in the skin and abdominal wall muscles through which the stomach was punctured with a quick stab under direct vision. The endoscopist then grasped a silk thread passed through a catheter in the abdominal wall and drew it out of the mouth. The silk was then used to pull a tube back down the esophagus and into the stomach. When the tip of the tube was visible, it was pulled out of the stab incision and secured into position. And there you have it. Over the next few months, the team placed gastrostomies in 12 infants and children and in 19 adults. The procedure was presented as a paper and short movie by Goderer at the annual meeting of the American Pediatric Surgical Association and by Ponsky at the Digestive Disease Week meeting, both in May of 1980. While some tweaks have been made, the basic principle remains creating a relatively simple and safe procedure to replace what previously was an invasive operation to the benefit of countless patients. And another benefit was to, in the words of Dr. Ponsky, to, quote, help establish the concept of the flexible endoscope as a surgical instrument, end quote. And, as he also points out, this particular innovation inverted the conventional view of medical progress, as it was only after successful implementation of the procedure was PEG taken to the animal laboratory to assess tract formation and durability. A great example of paying attention and thinking creatively, leading to something that would change medical practice for the better. Next up is the first of two surgeons all profile. I know I said one at the beginning, but you'll see in the next section. But first we're going to cover a trauma surgeon whose birth name was James Henry Duke, but was known by most as Red, a nickname he picked up early in life for his curly red locks. A born and raised Texan, he spent a two-year tour of duty as a tank officer in the 2nd Armored Division of the U.S. Army in Germany during the Korean War. Following his service, Duke earned a divinity degree in 1955. 
So how did he change course into medicine? Well, he was inspired by reading about Albert Schweitzer. If you don't know who that is, let's do a quick bio within a bio, sort of legends of surgery inception. Schweitzer was born in the German Empire in 1875 and initially followed in his family's footsteps by studying theology, earning a licensate in 1900. For a few years, he worked as a preacher, but then decided to go to Africa as a medical missionary rather than as a pastor. And so Schweitzer entered medical school in 1905 at the, for the time, advanced age of 30 at the University of Strasbourg. Upon graduating, he founded a hospital at the village of Lamborine in French Equatorial Africa, now called Gabon. Initially, the hospital was in a hut, formerly used as a chicken coop, and the first construction was a simple two-room corrugated iron shack, which included an operating theater where his wife Helen would act as the anesthetist. This eventually expanded to 70 buildings by the 1960s, which could treat up to 500 patients. When he wasn't working as a physician, Dr. Schweitzer acted as a pastor of a congregation, superintendent of the buildings, a writer, and of course, a world-famous organist. He actually has a number of recordings that you can listen to, which is kind of amazing. Anyways, in 1952, Dr. Schweitzer won the Nobel Peace Prize and used the prize money to start a leprosorium, which you may have guessed was used to treat patients with leprosy. While researching this, I found out that these are also called Lazar houses, after the patron saint of lepers, Lazarus. And not the Lazarus that is risen from the dead. This is a different Lazarus. If you're curious, look up the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. So you can see, perhaps, why Duke was inspired to turn to medicine. He enrolled in medical school, graduating in 1960, before beginning his surgical residency at Dallas Parkland Memorial Hospital. If that name rings any bells to students of American history, it may be because that was where U.S. President John F. Kennedy was taken after being shot in his motorcade. Duke was the first surgeon as a fourth-year resident to receive him. As JFK was beyond help, Duke who allegedly stated, I can't do much for a dead man, turned his attention to Texas Governor John Connolly, who had been in the same limousine as the president and had also been shot. Connolly had three broken ribs, a punctured lung, a shattered wrist, and a bullet lodged in his leg. Duke, among others, attended his wounds, which required four hours of surgery, but his life was saved. Following graduation, Duke worked in Texas, New York and even spent two years in Afghanistan before returning to Texas, this time at the University of Texas Medical School in Houston. Up next was the signature achievement of his career, the establishment of Life Flight in 1976 at the Memorial Hermann Hospital. Life Flight was just the second helicopter air medical program in the U.S. at the time of its inaugural flight on August 1st of 1976. Dr. Duke served as the program director from its inception up until his death on August 25th, 2015, at the age of 86. Life Flight operates 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, within a 150-mile radius of the hospital, and has flown over 140,000 patient missions. And listen to the features on these helicopters themselves. Pre-hospital blood product administration, including packed red blood cells and liquid plasma, left ventricular assist devices, extracorporeal membranous oxygenation, or ECMO, intra-aortic balloon pump, portable blood warmers, ultrasound diagnostics, 
fibrinolytic intervention for ST elevation MI patients, iStat portable blood analyzers, video-assisted intubations, hemostatic agents for blood clotting, and night vision goggles for crew members. That last one is less medical, but just really cool. Oh, and as of December 1st of 2020, Life Flight became the first air ambulance service in the U.S. to offer treatment and transportation of injured canine officers. And I'm not talking about the human handlers, to be clear. This is specifically for dogs. Isn't that amazing? And one last awesome fact I learned about this particular program. The simulator canine used in training is named Jake, as a tribute to Red Duke's dog. If you're interested in seeing Life Flight in action, apparently there is a six-part docudrama on the channel Lifetime called Life Flight, Trauma Center Houston. And speaking of TV, Red Duke himself was a star of the small screen, hosting a nationally syndicated TV show called Texas Health Reports, which ran for 15 years, and a PBS series called Body Watch. Sounds like a fascinating character. Red Duke passed away in 2015, and the following year, the memorial Herman Texas Trauma Institute was renamed the Memorial Herman Red Duke Trauma Institute, a fitting legacy for a surgical legend. Okay, on to our final topic, which is both a surgical tool and a surgeon with a very interesting story. I'm talking about the Penrose Drain and its creator, Charles Bingham Penrose. Born on February 1st, 1862 to a, quote, family of distinction, as one article put it, in Philadelphia, Penrose was an interesting character to say the least. Described as strikingly handsome, standing six feet and of powerful build, his adventures outside of medicine are nearly as noteworthy as his career. In the summer of 1882, at the age of 20, Penrose rode on horseback from Philadelphia to Niagara Falls and back, a roughly 800-mile or 1,300-kilometer journey. At the age of 28, on a dare related to a conversation about the power of endurance, he swam 15 miles, or 24 kilometers, in the ocean in five hours. Several years after this, while hunting in the mountains of Montana, Penrose killed a bear cub. Its mother severely mauled him, and he was able to save his own life only by shooting the attacking bear through the throat during the struggle. He then surgically repaired his own wrist, which had a bone protruding, likely saving his own hand. There are more adventures, but they happen a bit later in his life, so let's catch up on his professional activities. Penrose first attended Harvard College, graduating with honors after studying physics. He had even articles published in scientific journals on magnetism and electricity. From there, he went on to medical school at the University of Pennsylvania, but had an arrangement with Harvard to continue as a doctoral candidate, spending two months a year at Harvard and graduated in the spring of 1884 at the age of 22 with a doctor of medicine and a doctor of philosophy and physics from Harvard. Puts one to shame, doesn't it? Penrose's medical practice focused on gynecology, and in fact he established the Gynetian Hospital in Philadelphia in 1888, the first in the city to cater exclusively to women. It began as two small rooms in a private house, but by 1908 it had grown to 32 ward beds and 12 private rooms. The hospital merged with the University of Pennsylvania in 1939. It was predominantly dedicated to surgical intervention and provided care to all women, regardless of ability to pay, and was financially supported in part 
by the state legislature of Pennsylvania, although one of its duties was also to sequester venereally infected women sent by the municipal court until rendered uncontagious. It was here that Penrose mastered his surgical skills and was said to have convinced his colleagues that, quote, recovery from abdominal section could be habitual rather than occasional, unquote. Part of the reason he could claim this was his expertise in abdominal drains. In fact, in 1889, he presented his defense of drainage and abdominal surgery at the American Medical Association. Penrose acknowledged that many surgeons avoided using drainage tubes for fear of damaging internal organs, but believed that with correct handling and attentive cleaning, such fears were groundless. He described the three types of drains available at the time, rubber tubes, glass tubes, and tubes that can bind with gauze or some other kind of wick for capillary drainage. Now remember the capillary action of water from your physics studies? It's basically the ability of a fluid to flow in narrow spaces without the assistance of external forces like gravity. In fact, fluids can flow against gravity, like when you dip a paper towel into a liquid spill and it moves up the paper towel. So back to these drains. Rubber and glass tubes were inserted directly through the wound into the abdominal cavity to create a conduit for blood and other fluids to be drained. In his 1897 book, A Textbook of Diseases of Women, Penrose described a drainage device made of tubular rubber sheeting and stuffed with gauze, which came with the advice, quote, when in doubt, drain, end quote. Not as catchy as when in doubt, cut it out, but probably a more reasoned approach. Let me quote the book to provide some interesting details. Quote, One objection to the gauze drain is the difficulty of removal. Lymph processes and granulations penetrate the interstices of the gauze and often render its removal very difficult. The surgeon fears to use too much force in attempts at withdrawal because an adherent loop of intestine or omentum may be pulled out of place or damaged, or the lymph wall of the drainage tract may become open and expose the general peritoneum to infection. To avoid this difficulty, the writer has, for some time, used a drain made by surrounding the gauze bag with an ordinary rubber condom, the end of which has been cut open. With this arrangement, the surgeon may feel certain that there are no adhesions except at the end of the drain. Such drains may be removed as easily as the glass tube, the condom may be sterilized by boiling. Gauze drains should be removed at the end of two or three days. After withdrawing the gauze, it is advisable to insert a small rubber tube for reasons that have been mentioned in considering the use of the glass drainage tube, end quote. That's right, the original Penrose drain was a condom with the tip cut off, which was boiled and reused. <gasps> in 1890, at the age of 28, Penrose developed pulmonary tuberculosis, a.k.a. the consumption, and this plagued him for the remainder of his life. In fact, it forced him to retire from medicine in 1899 at the far too young age of 38. However, this was not the end of his adventures. Even if not directly surgically related, they're still pretty interesting. To try to cure himself of TB, Penrose made frequent trips to the West in the hopes that the air, altitude, sunlight, and exercise might cure him. On the advice of his father, Penrose took up a pick and spade and dug ditches, without pay, mind you, for the city of Cheyenne, Wyoming in 1892. It was in this same year that he joined the Johnson County Invaders as their official surgeon. And who were these men, you ask? Well, this involved a conflict over control of rangeland used for cattle grazing. 
Violence broke out between the large, established ranchers, called the Wyoming Stock Growers Association, and smaller settlers in the state, with the ranchers getting hired guns, a.k.a. the Johnson County Invaders, leading to approximately 200 small farmers and ranchers, as well as state lawmen, to form a posse. Penrose wrote a book about his adventures entitled The Rustler Business, in which he describes being taken prisoner after returning to the town of Douglas. He went there due to being desperately ill, and being arrested on site likely saved him from being shot. Penrose details that the authorities thought his bichloride tablets were intended for poisoning the wells, and they decided to lynch him. However, it was postponed until the morning to allow for a larger audience. His cellmate, Jeff Dunbar, who was in for killing a man over a game of cards, kindly offered Penrose a pair of scissors in case he preferred death by his own hand. Through his friendship with the acting governor of Wyoming, a surgeon and former classmate from medical school named Amos Barber, Penrose was able to slip the noose and live to tell the tale. He returned to the East, and after his retirement became involved in a number of civic groups. In 1901, he established the Penrose Research Laboratory at the Philadelphia Zoo to study comparative pathology with the aim of reducing the mortality of zoo animals. In the early years, dead animals would be taken to the pathology laboratory at the University of Pennsylvania Hospital. And this is cute. The post-mortem reports were filed with the hospital along with the human patients. The first animal entry was listed as Mrs. P.H. Antelope, who had died of a kidney ailment. The P.H. stood for pronghorned. Now Penrose, despite his early retirement, lived on for many more years, dying from a heart attack while traveling by train home to Philadelphia on February 27, 1925, at the age of 63. Now that wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. In the meantime, please rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download episodes and leave a comment there. Or follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends. Like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery. Or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you, but your thoughts on this podcast or ideas for future episodes. And as always, thanks for listening.